0: looked forward to PSR every year thereafter. And a lot of the speakers that we have invited to preach at Summit were men that deeply impacted my life at PSR. The two men that are going to be preaching this morning are in that group. Brother Ken Bo and Brother Wade Bass. When I first heard Brother At PSR, I was so deeply, deeply impacted. I can remember almost every single, I could almost repeat that message. I wore the tape out. The law of worship. The law of worship. We are greatly honored to have Brother Bo here. It's his first time at Summit. Would you put your hands together for the man of God as he comes? well get your sword out get your sword out let's kill a giant today what do you say honored to be here You can start your journey toward the book of 1st Kings. Read two solitary verses today. The first will be from 1st Kings 3 and 5. Give honor today to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know where you'd be without him. But if it wasn't for him. of us would be here today. I love him. Give honor to your bishop here and local assembly. What an amazing man he is. We need his contributions to the work of God today. He has earned not only our affection, but our respect and his tenacity and his faith and his vision what he has accomplished with his life and Brother Mayo we salute you truly, truly you have been an amazing man for this generation and thank you for your vision, why don't you give the bishop a good round of applause he is worthy to Sister Mayo and the Mayo family, thank you I'm convinced today that somewhere in Sister Mayo's genealogy is a fellow by the name of Asaph. (laughs) She is the most amazing lady when it comes to music, creativity, organization, music program, and on top of all that, such a godly example, and appreciate her and all that she brings to the kingdom of God. Amen. want to say thank you to this local assembly for your hospitality everything is simply excellent down to the last detail and thank you for the nice room the nice basket all the personnel that work these kind of meetings are very difficult to produce takes a lot of people working together And you do it as well as any I've ever seen anywhere. So congratulations to you. What an achievement to the local assembly. Give honor to the other preachers. So happy to be here with them, looking forward to their ministry. All the ministers that are in the house today, thank you. God bless you and to all the wonderful saints of God. Give honor to Brother Hoffer, my friend up there on Holy Ghost Radio. I love Holy Ghost Radio, except when I'm doing the speaking. That's the only time I don't like it. But I give him honor, and I want to say thank you to Brother Bertram and Sister Bertram, his pastor and pastor's wife. Thank you for sharing him with the rest of us and allowing that to be a blessing to our lives. Amen. Certainly, felt like the Lord spoke to me last night. I hope that uh, you take what he had to, to give us last night and, and what a blessing it was The sign said turn off your cell phone And my mind's been on the sermon And so I didn't turn off my cell phone But I just did, praise the Lord Sorry about that Brother Urshan, and I Cannot say enough good things About your message last night Thank you He took Goliath's sword Out of Goliath's hand And used it on Goliath He took what the world thinks Is going to defeat the church with And took it right out of his hand and turn it around and say, we're going to defeat you with your own sword. Pretty cool. Let's go to the word of the Lord. 1 Kings 3 and 5. In Gibbon, some people say Gibeon is fine with me. I'm pronouncing it the way I'm used to. In Gibbon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask what I... I shall give thee. Solomon refers to himself in verse 7 as a child when this event happens. My second solo verse today is from the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 13. Better is a poor And wise child Than an old And foolish king Who will no more be Admonished My subject today is The slide The slide Let's pray Lord Jesus You see this meeting Every Collected, individual every heart mind soul direction future past present let the spirit speak unto the church today we are so one-dimensional but god you're multi-dimensional one word can speak to 500 people god minister through your holy ghost and your word today hallelujah Thank you. You may be seated. It was a Thursday night. I saw him walking down the center aisle, and I observed that it was not his normal, jaunty, jovial, bouncy step. Brother Parker is here today and is from my home church. He can probably visualize with me what the moment would have been when you look up and Brother Terry's coming down the center aisle. And it's about time to start church. Brother Booker is here, preached a long revival. He probably, and those of you that knew Brother Terry, could probably envision the moment. I don't know how you are, but I was very uh, attentive to my pastor's mood before the service. I felt like it was a harbinger. It was a, a notice of what was to come. So if he was jovial and shaking hands and telling jokes, I kind of went, everything's going to (laughs) be... But when he had that knot in his jaw and that steely glance in his eye, I watched my P's and Q's, I sat straight, paid attention. I didn't fool around because I felt like something was probably coming down the pike. And on this particular night, more than any other than I remember, And those that were uh, other times may remember. But for me, I don't remember a single moment I ever saw him so locked in and so intense. He came walking down that center aisle. There was no variance. There was no shaking hands. There was no stopping. He came right down the middle aisle and up on the platform. His custom with us, the years I was there, is he had the young men all sit on the platform and he was developing them into preachers. He had a running joke with Brother Haney, who was over the uh, Clyde Haney, who was over the Bible school back in those days up in Stockton, and he told Brother Clyde Haney he said, "You manufacture preachers on an assembly line." He said, "I hand polish mine that 's what I do." So there was this biggest mistake I ever made in the years I sat under Brother Terry was asking him whether I should go to Bible college or not. <laughs> it was the wrong thing to ask. I still remember it. And he came down, and his style was, he had all these young preachers on the platform. He turned out, they say, 40 preachers in 40 years. So he was very into sending men into the field. So he came up on the platform that night, and his normal way of doing business would he would just simply point at someone and say, you lead service, and you lead songs. And there was no advance warning. There was no schedule. There was no calendar, there was certainly no on-song notice, there was nothing. Just at that moment, be ready, because you could be leading songs in 30 seconds, so be prepared. And that was his normal, and we were used to it. He would just simply walk up and say, you're leading songs, you lead service, and here we go. But that night, he did not speak to any of us. He came down that center aisle, I still remember it so vividly, and he stepped up on the platform and he walked right to the pulpit. And of course, so unusual was this moment that there's just a hush fell on the congregation. And he said, last night, I had a dream. And he began to tell his dream. For those of you that don't know him and maybe only hear varied stories about him, let me shed light on one side of Brother Terry that was unique, and that is he was exceedingly poetic, He read poetry. He loved poetry. He stood in the pulpit and quoted poetry, service after service after service. Heights by great men reached and kept were not obtained by sudden flight, but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward through the night. I heard that so many times, I still remember it. He quoted, He drew a circle put me out. Heretic, a rebel, a thing to flout, but I with love and a desire to win drew a circle and put him in. He could quote poetry by the page. And that bled into his preaching. And There were moments in his preaching that to this day in my life are unparalleled. Moments when he got under the anointing, I'm telling you. And and all that that he read and saw and, and, and feasted on. Taking the word of God and putting it in that poetic moment were or, or sublime moments in my life as a young man uh, developing under his ministry. And on this particular night uh, was as good as I ever heard. He simply began to tell the dream that the Lord had given him. And in his dream, he went to heaven. And in his dream, he was walking the streets of heaven with the Lord. He was describing to us in in very detailed uh, uh, adjectives. He was telling us how the street looked, how the buildings looked. He described the walls and the gates and the music and the ambience and the all of it it was he he was so effective that night i believe anointed as well as just his human ability that that i was in the moment i was sitting on that platform listening to him and i actually felt like i made the journey to heaven it was that it was that profound of a moment and brother terry had tears rolling down his face as he's telling us this moment of His dream and then he told us the punch line of the dream. He said in my dream. I Stopped and I said to the Lord. This is beautiful. This is unbelievable but where are The people because in his dream there was no one there, but he and the Lord and He told us the punch line of his dream. He said the Lord slowly turned and looked at him And in his dream, he said, This is when mercy fails. When mercy fails, nobody's gonna make it. When mercy fails, no one will walk the streets of gold. You are here today because of the mercy of God. We celebrate mercy against judgment. Hallelujah. Oh, let's take a moment and thank you for the great mercies and the fact that they renewed every single day. Thank you. You may be seated. When he had finished telling us that moment where the Lord spoke to him in a dream and said, this is when mercy fails, he proceeded to preach to us a message called, Only Fools Go to Hell. Only Fools Go to Hell. Using that launching to have walked in his dream the streets of gold, to have seen the beauty and majesty of a place called heaven. His mind instantly did the math and said, only a fool would go to hell and miss all of this. And he gave us three reasons why only a fool would go to hell. He preached that night. The one reason only fools go to hell is because there's really only one thing that will send you there. Oh, I know that sometimes we have a catalog and a a, a file of things listing all sorts of sin and vice and failure and, and uh, things that are simply horrible and we don't even want to talk about across the pulpit. But really, Brother Terry's point was there's only one thing that will send you there. And it's recorded in Revelation. And in chapter number 16, it says, Because they repented not to give him glory. Mercy says that whatever you've done today can be forgiven if you'll repent. Nothing you have done today will keep you out of heaven if you will simply repent. The only thing that can keep you off of the streets of gold is if you're too proud to get up off of your pew and make your way to an altar and bend your knee and cry your tears and say, I'm sorry. It's the only thing. that was his first reason. His second reason he gave us that night was because only the last round counts. It doesn't matter what you did 30 years ago. What matters is what are you doing today. I appreciate that you had a prayer life 30 years ago. Do you have one today? I appreciate you used to fast 30 years ago do you fast today Ezekiel said if he lives his whole life but at the end of it all turns to God he says none of his sin shall be mentioned unto him it's the last round I don't care what you are when you came today get up get up get up in this service get up in this meeting go forward only the last round counts and he gave us you may be seated he gave us one more reason that night he gave us three reasons that only fools go to hell The first one was because only one thing will send you there, and that's if you won't repent. The second one is that only the last round counts, so get right tonight. And then he proceeded to try his best to tell us how terrible a place hell was. It's a bad place. I remember as a boy raised in California, being barefoot in the summer, getting so hot trying to walk down the asphalt road. Feet burning. I'd have to run to get on the white line. The white line, for some reason, was a little cooler. It'd be like, whoa. I I thought that was hot. Your body temperature is 98.6. Germs die at 140 degrees. Lead melts at 620 degrees. Aluminum melts at 1,220 degrees. Gold melts at 1,765 degrees. Iron melts at 2,795 degrees. Man, that sounds hot to me. But is that hot to God? The sun he created makes its own sun and energy and fuel by constantly changing hydrogen into helium and what we call nuclear energy. Nothing, absolutely nothing can survive at the surface of the sun. Its surface alone is over 10,000 degrees. And they estimate the core of the sun is some 27 million degrees. It's an incredible thing that the sun's shining in the sky, I can see the sunlight through the open doors there. That sunlight that we enjoy, the warmth that we enjoy, The sun gives off its radiant heat. Only one two billionth of its heat reaches planet earth. All of that we enjoy in our world is one two billionth. If you stepped outside our atmosphere, you know this, I'm sure, that you would be instantly fried from 93 million miles away. We think We understand hot and we're talking about a God who created a place for the lost. Only a fool would choose to deny heaven and go to hell. Only a fool would go to hell. And today for just the next few moments, I'm going to try to talk to you about who I consider the greatest fool of the Bible. A man by the name of Solomon. I read you today his Genesis. And I read you today one of the final penned messages that he leaves us in the archive. This man was the third king of Israel. He also reigned for 40 years. He was David's 10th son. He was not the heir to the throne as we would have observed it from our natural standpoint. Certainly, Amnon and Absalom would have filled that position, but they were dead. And so Adonijah's whole rebellion that we look with disdain and his joining with Joab and Abiathar. We look at all of that and wonder what was wrong with him. But in our natural thinking, most of us would have taken the same posture and believed the same thing. And you know the story of that ill-fated Uh, revolt that cost Joab his life and Abiathar his exile to his to Anathoth his home uh, overlooking the Dead Sea and that whole event that happened there Solomon was not even the first son of his own mother he was the second son of Bathsheba for we all know that the original and first son died when he was just a baby I believe that that when he went to uh, Gabon, the place that I read to you about today, concerning his uh, enthronement or concerning his uh, being crowned king, uh, was at a place called Gabon. I want to pause long enough to try to set this moment in your attention because it is the prelude to his fall. It is the beginning of his ascent. And he went places on this earth that no man has ever achieved since then. He went to Gibbon, which was about, is about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. And this place had a long and storied history. It was at Gibbon that Joshua was fighting a battle and he was running out of time and he could see that the onslaught and the wave of his army was not about to uh, take its toll. And he said, God, I need more time. It was at Gibbon the battle was being fought that Joshua said, could you give me a little more time? And God says, I'll stop the sun for one 24-hour period. And astronomers go nuts over this. They scratch their head and they can't figure it out. And they get their calculus out and they get their uh, computers out and they do all of their figuring and they still have one 24-hour period in the history of the world that they can't find and they don't understand it. Let me explain it to you, Mr. Astronomer. It happened one day at Gibbon when a man of God said, I need 24 more hours. And God God said son stands don't tell me prayer is not powerful it is the only method known to man that can defy the laws of nature prayer can change nature so it was that gibbon that the sun stood still it was at Gibbon where the or Gibeonites, as you may call them, come to him and say, we want to make an alliance with you. And that so angered the five kings to the south. They joined in an alliance and said, we're going to march. We're going to join forces. These people have already taken Jericho. They've already knocked down Ai and they're a threat to us. And they join in their alliance, these five kings of the south, and they come against Joshua. And it's at Gibbon that that defeat happens to those five kings. Kings. It's considered by all historians and people of of ancient history. If you go to any kind of college class, they will teach you this in Western civilization. That battle is one of the turning points of ancient history. It was the battle that opened the door to the southern part of the kingdom that knocked years off of the conquest of the promised land. Defeating those five kings at one time and they were defeated. They wrote it on their own still. It's been Archaeologically discovered and they wrote it down. They were so fearful They almost hightailed it to Egypt and after the defeat they wished that they had hallelujah But it was at Gabon that this magnificent victory happened and the whole door to the southern kingdom and the whole southern Campaign one of three in Joshua's complex army plans that whole campaign was opened up by that one victory at Gabon Gabon is no small place You have to understand Gabon has this long, rich history in the Bible. It was at Gabon years later that Joab and his army sat down with Abner and his army and the whole world the whole nation is convoluted into this this civil war and they're trying to fight it out and, and Joab and Abner sit down with their army and say there's really no need to fight a big army here let's just tw- choose 12 men out of each side and let them go at it and whoever wins that way we'll save a lot of bloodshed you'll remember this and while they sit there those 12 men grab each other by the beard and they all kill each other and the thing gets out of control and this is when Abner is chasing, uh, running, and and, and Joab's younger brother chasing. All of that event, that whole event, that was at Gibbon. It was at Gibbon, years later, that David conquers the Philistines. It was at Gibbon that God didn't forget Saul's mistreatment of the Gibeonites. And he sends a three-year drought. And David says, what's wrong? And God says, you mistreated the Gibbonites. It was at Gibbon that they said, well, we want seven sons of Saul. And we want them hung up before the Lord. And Rizba takes her weapon and drives the birds away for six long months. Read it in your Bible. It wasn't a few days. It began in April at the beginning of the harvest and went all the way through the first rainfall, which was probably in late September or early October. And that woman faithfully for six months, that was at Gibbon. Do you understand this place has a rich spiritual heritage? It was at Gibbon that Joab ambushes Amasa and fights him and kills him there. And so it's not just a little place that solomon gathers himself together after he has been anointed king and says i'm going to go to the current high place there were the artifacts that david once took to jerusalem they were stored at gibbon it was there and so he goes to gibbon the high place and he takes a thousand animals as a sacrifice and he offers them there to the lord and in this place of such storied history and great victories and impossible events and supernatural occurrences, he falls asleep. And God says to him in a dream, for He said way back in Numbers twelve, "If I speak unto a prophet, I will speak to him by a dream or a vision." And so He speaks to Solomon, "What would you like?" And it's at Gibbon, while in a dream, Solomon makes the incredible choice. I want wisdom. I want wisdom. I want to be able to go out and come in before your people. God says because you have not chosen riches and you have not chosen honor and all of the plethora of things that men think are important but you have chosen the one thing that is near and dear to my heart I will give you all of the other carte blanche you can have whatever you want but I'm just telling you take good care of my people and Solomon rises from his sleeping bed and he is stricken in his own self and says these words I I am but a little child. Some rabbis say he was twelve. Some say thirteen. I'm going with eighteen, based on what I've read and studied. No debate. If you want to argue about it, you're right. It's irrelevant. But for the sake of today, I'm just going to use the number eighteen. It seems like God used that number a lot. Isaiah was about eighteen when he started preaching. Jeremiah was 16 when he really preached. He was 14 when he started. Ezekiel was about 18 when he went down to the river Shebar Sheba and started that. Daniel was about 18. So there's, you know, it amazes me when young people, 16, 17, and 18, think God can't use them. David was young. God used him. Daniel was young. Ezekiel was young. Jeremiah was young. Isaiah was young. Joseph was young. Get off of that crippled crutch of an excuse and quit saying, I got to wait till I'm out of high school. I got to wait till I get on my career. Why don't you let God do something with you right now? So he has this moment and he goes back to Jerusalem. And you know, the way the Bible is written, they immediately... It always does this in your Bible. When it says something, then it proves it. That's for all your atheist and agnostic friends that don't believe anything. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Greatest discourse ever preached by Jesus. You know what chapter 8, 9, and 10 is? It's full of miracles proving that what he said matters. No 8, 9, 10. They could say, ah, it's just a bunch of words. But when Jesus inaugurates his kingdom in 5, 6, 7 of Matthew... And walks down, and the first thing he touches is a leper and heals him. Miracle after miracle, they have to stand back and say, Well, I guess he knows what he's talking about. He authenticates what he says by his miraculous power. And that's what happens here. The writers want us to understand he was given wisdom. So they put right there the story of the two harlots, the dead and the living baby. To accelerate our understanding. He begins to build the temple. And what a magnificent job he does. You know as well as I that the temple took seven years to build. This was early in his life. Somewhere along in the building of the temple in this early segment of his life. He also wrote one of the sapiential books. Books of wisdom called the Song of Solomon. Now we know it was early in his life because he only had... 80 wives and 60 concubines at this time. (laughs) Takes time to get married a thousand times, folks. I'm just going to tell you. And he had 140 notches on his belt at this moment. So this was the early part of his life and he's building the temple. You know the story seven years, incredible debt. In fact he rolls up such a credit card debt at the end of his reign. Rehoboam is, is left by the ten tribes because of Solomon's overspending. There are, there are insights into the fool nature in his heart and one of them is his expenditure. He, he continues to expend and expend and expend and he, he works 200,000 men as you well know for seven years and builds this magnificent building. He is the man undeniably that built the most incredible building in the history of the world in honor to God. How many days did he stand there looking at blueprints? How many days did he stand there watching the stones laid in place? How many moments were there of of chest busting pride knowing this is what we think of our God. We want the world to know that he's the greatest thing in the world and he built this magnificent temple for seven years then we know that for the next 13 years he spent building the king's house so we know that at least 20 years and he started in his fourth year so the first 24 years of his kingdom we know that he was living the way god was pleased with to some degree but then comes The fateful verse in 1 Kings chapter 11. When we begin to see the man who had reached the pinnacle that no one had ever reached before. Suddenly starts down. And his downward journey is not a fall. It's a slide. During his journey he writes. Song of Solomon when he's a young man he writes proverbs when he's middle age proverbs is a great exposé of two women the contrast of two women the woman on the street chapters 1 through 7 I think it is and then starting in chapter 8 he contrasts that with the woman of wisdom the entire book is holding up and who would know more he had a phd in womanology think as the years rolled by let my imagination work for just a moment don't don't this is not in the bible don't take it out on me too bad but apparently the first woman that he married was pharaoh's daughter and in this ascent in this climb where no one else had ever been along the way he forms alliances with egypt to the south With regions as far as India to the east, Spain in the north, Africa to the south. His annual income is a whopping 666 talents of gold. His income, the breadth of what he does. I was privileged to work uh, on an archaeological dig in 1994 at Megiddo, and I, I was able to spend time personally in Solomon's stables, where he housed 4,000 of his chariots and 12,000 of his cavalrymen, and and what a magnificent thing! And there's a great debate today. If you read this, don't believe it; it's a bunch of baloney. But there's a great debate among archaeologists today to 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 make the Bible seem as though it's archaic and it's it's inaccurate. They wanna they wanna tell you today some of the men that I actually worked with on that on that dig. Israel Finkel in particular, David Yushishkin, David Halpern from Penn State University, these men, they want to present to you that that the Bible is making David and Solomon bigger than they are. There's a book out right now. I read it myself and it's by Israel Finkelstein and he wants to say that David's era was just a little hamlet with just a few hundred people. That that through the years they've built this up and it wasn't really that way. And that the grand moment came under Jeroboam the second. Well I'm I'm not going to deny that Jeroboam the second was an affluent period. That's what the book of Amos is all about. When that country cloud hopping preacher that that was a picker of sycamore fruit comes and points his bony finger at Amaziah and and the priest at Bethel and and condemns all that he sees. I'm not going to deny that Jeroboam's reign was affluent, but I'm here to tell you the Bible is right. And the Bible says that David built the kingdom. And the Bible says that Solomon... Don't you believe it in that college class when they try to tell you archaeology denies that. That is not true. So go with me. I don't know how it happened but let me use my imagination. Solomon is now he's been king 24 years. If he started at 18, he's 42 years old. And maybe he went into one of his wives' house one day. Just making the rounds. <laughs> and he, he notices over on the table uh, some papers. And he just kind of wanders over and, hey, honey buns, what's this? Oh, don't, don't pay any attention to that, That's Some stuff I've been working on. No, no, what is it? Looks interesting. Oh, you, you wouldn't be interested in that, Solomon. Man, that looks like a sketch. Well, do you really want to know? Yeah, I really do, honey. What is this? I love buildings. I enjoy building things. What is this? Well, you see, honey, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. I don't want to sound like a griping wife, but, man, it's so far from home, and all my people are back home, and travel's so difficult. It just I just got to daydreaming one day what it would be like if I could just build a little temple to Shemosh. and how, how that would make me feel, to feel like you care about me, and, and I, I matter to you. And, 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 and I don't know what went through his mind. He's been king for a long time. He's rich. He's famous. He has been visited by the most famous people in the world. The queen of Sheba has come. The ancestress of Nebuchadnezzar himself traced their lineage. He came from the loins of the queen of Sheba. You'll find out that what she saw, he came back and took. You better be careful what your enemy sees. Because his kids may be back to take it home with them someday. And in his mind, he has started down the slide. And he thinks, well, God is God. Shemosh is not really a God anyway. What can it hurt? And he picks up the blue pants and rolls them up. Puts them in his robe pocket. I'll look into this. And before long, not far. From the building built to God. Construction starts on a temple to Shemosh. And before it's over, as you know, there's another one to Asenath. And there's another one to the Moabites gods. These are the people that David, his father, conquered. David defeated the Moabites. And Solomon is bringing their God back and building a temple to it. These are the gods that eat up children and infants in the valley of Hinnom where the burning fires rage and they close the gate to shut out the noise. I heard Brother Marks preach about it not long ago in Oregon. These are the people that don't mind feeding their children to their gods. I got a letter recently. Sorry to say this. Got a letter and they meant it as positive, but it struck me from the organization I'm a part of. And they were saying that if you join Bible quizzing, that there's an 80% chance your kids will stay in church. But if you don't, the national number is 50% of our children are being lost out of our churches. I don't know about you, but I don't want to build a temple to Shemosh. I don't want to build a temple to Moab. I don't want to feed my children. It's really incredible to me, first of all, that Solomon would build these things. But, you know, maybe he was too far gone. Maybe his mental condition, he was on such a slide. He couldn't realize the severity, for he handicapped the nation for the next 400 years. 372 years later. A young king that came to the throne when he was eight and started to seek the Lord when he was 16 and started a national revival when he was 20 and had a six-year national revival by the name of, his name is Josiah. 372 years later, after he's cleansed everything and tore down the houses of the Sodomites and he's tore everything out of, uh, uh, of the region, he says, you know what? Let's go back up north. They've been gone for 100 years, but let's go up there and clean house. And he went to Bethel and he went clear to Naphtali. Look at your map. He went clear to the northern end. clear to the, He cleaned house everything, everywhere. And somewhere along that journey, it was Josiah. 372 years later. Then he said, what are these? They said, those are the temples that Solomon built to his heathen wife. He said, tear them down. And a man picked up a hammer. It's amazing what you can walk right by and never realize is important to God. Are you hearing me? I don't want to get so used to sin that I walk right past it and don't realize that it's displeasing to God. Maybe see. I don't want to bore you with details, but this will just take a second. Asa walked right by those things for 41 years. Jehoshaphat walked right past them because they're right by Jerusalem. They were for 25 years. Joash for 40 years. These are the eight good kings. Of the 19 kings and one queen in the south, there were eight good. Of the 19 kings in the north, there were none good. 200 years in the north, they never had a good king. In the south, they had at least 232 years under eight kings. The majority of the time, it was good. But these good men, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, and Hezekiah, not one of them ever thought about tearing down those temples. Until Josiah came along and said, take them out. Tell you one thing, that's why the prophet Jeremiah wept. When he got in that chariot, went out to fight Nico, the king of Egypt, on the plains of Megiddo. When Josiah was slain in battle. That's why Jeremiah picked up his pen in 2 Chronicles 35 and 25. And says "And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah. And he picked up his pen and started writing the book we call Lamentations. And in chapter 4, you could read it. When he gets to Josiah, he says he was everything we are. He was the blood that we live. Under his shadow shall we live among the heathen. It was under the shadow of Josiah's revival that Daniel held on until the return. He stayed in power till the third year of Darius and the decree was signed in the first year. Daniel stayed on board under the shadow of Josiah until the repatriation. It's a sad day that only 42,318 came back when there were millions that came out of Egypt but at least 42,000 came back and there was a Jerusalem and there was a promised land and when Jesus came there was a people to save. But it was under Josiah's shadow that Daniel lived. It was under Josiah's shadow that the Babylonian captivity existed. Solomon built those temples that lasted for almost 400 years. The decline. How do you go from a Gabon moment Where you're in the presence of God. Favor of God. And God says, I'm going to do for you what I've never done for another man. And you climb that pinnacle of success. And after 24 years. Wealthy. Famous. Successful. You start making bad choices. It's a slide. It's not a fall. It's one step at a time until when he dies. This is the part that's so sad. If you read the cableist writings, if you read the people that are into the sapiential books, the books of wisdom, I understand he wrote three in the Bible. I understand he wrote five out of seven between the Bible and the Apocrypha. I understand. But that becomes their God. Their God is. Wisdom. His strength became his fall. His wisdom that was anointed and God given became the only thing he leaned on after 25 years of serving the Lord. I challenge you to Google it and read the fables. Concerning Solomon. You talk about a tragedy of unparalleled existence. They have amulets with his caricature as late as the Hellenistic period, 400 years AD. He reigned 970 to 930. That means for almost 1500 years, the enemies of God. The people that want to work by just natural means, the postmodern crowd. They chose him as their poster boy. Because we can get this done with just wisdom. We can get this done with just human ingenuity. We're smart enough to do this by ourselves. And they chose him as the man to put on their amulets and wear around their necks and to hold him up as some kind of an iconic poster boy you talk about crazy stories they have a story on Solomon that he rode an eagle that's how he traveled they tell another story that he rode a carpet 10 feet wide and 40 feet long and when he got up in the morning he just rode his magic carpet to Damascus and had breakfast and he rode it over to Babylon at night to have dinner And they believe that stuff because they're eaten up with what men can do with their natural ability. They tell stories about him having a magic ring with the Star of David on it. And Asmodeus, the prince of devils, comes and... He puts him in jail and Asmodeus talks him out of the ring. And Solomon gives him the ring. And and, and Asmodeus is so happy and he kicks Solomon out of his palace. Stupid stories. Do you hear me? This is where this man came to. In this line. Asmodeus kicks him out. Out of the 1,000 women in the Bible that Solomon married, only one of them is named. Only one. She's named in all these fables. Can you imagine what it would happen if they'd have named more than one? And in the little stupid parable, Asmodeus kicks him down. Solomon and Naamah are wandering around. Long story. Finally, they're starving and they go catch a fish. Read it in. Inside the fish is the ring. He's back in power again. Moral of the story is your wisdom can defeat all your dire circumstances. I came to preach to you today that the slide is the epitaph of modern Pentecost. It is what's staring us in the face. It was common language when I was a boy to talk about praying an hour a day. I'm asking you today, sincerely, not in any judgmental way. Do you know one person in your life that prays an hour every single day? When I was a boy, it was common. Everybody did it. My grandmother did it in my presence. But we are living in a generation where we have reached the point where we are smart enough to do it by procedure, by program, by lights, by smoke. We need an old-fashioned, heaven-sent, Holy Ghost revival. We need preachers that will stand and say no. If you'll just remain standing, I'm, I'm finished today. Reach over and pray for the person next to you that in the next few moments maybe God could speak to them. It took 16 years. It took 16 years. But the day finally came. Sitting in one of his beautiful houses. He picks up the parchment. And he dips his quill in an inkwell. And he writes better. Is a poor and wise child. Than an old and foolish king who will not be admonished. He wrote his own epitaph for the next 15 centuries. In my opinion, the greatest fool in the Bible to go where he went. And to end up where he ended up. Show me anyone. On a scale like that. He allowed. Sagacity. To replace. Spirituality. He thought education and wisdom. Was the key thing. And he did it to the point. That it replaced spirituality. I want to tell you that a world can slide. That's why there was an ark. I want to tell you that a nation can slide. That's why there was an Assyrian captivity in 721 BC. That's why there was a Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. I want to tell you that an organization can slide. That's why you can vote out television in 1950 and vote it back in a half a century later. It's a slide. But it's not just organizations. I'm here to tell you a church can slide, a church can slide. I could name a church right now that many of you would be familiar with in Southern California that at one point was 600 plus strong, dynamic, moving, going church. Today, there's nothing left. It's gone. The slide. I can tell you that a preacher can slide and begin to lean on his preparation more than his prayer. Six hours preparing for the sermon With six minutes of prayer Just doesn't work You're on the slide baby You're on the slide We're living in a day where we pay more for our ball fields Than we do our prayer rooms We're in the age of the slide but only fools go to hell because mercy never fails. And it's only the last round that counts. It can change today. You can get off the slide. You can head the other direction. You don't have to slide your way all the way. My preacher friends, grab a preacher by the arm and come stand at the front. Preacher's wives, grab a preacher's wife by the arm. Just come and stand at the front. Saints of God, grab somebody by the arm and just come. We'll take five minutes. I don't want to intrude on Brother Bass's time here, but let's just step to the front quickly, quickly, quickly and pray for the person you have by the arm. Pray for yourself and say, God, whatever you do, I don't want to slide. I don't want to slide, God. I don't want my holiness to slide. I don't want my prayer to slide. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The slide, the slide, the slide. Keep us off of the slide, Jesus. I don't want to write 3,000 proverbs and 1,000 songs and end up the biggest fool in the world. I don't want to build a tabernacle to God second to none and then turn around and build buildings to the deities of hell. Keep me, Jesus. Don't want to lose my kids. Pray, 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 pray. The slide, the slide, the slide. Little by little and you look back and you don't even recognize where you once were.